All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or you can open up your smartphone or tablet to uh, the, the Uversion Bible app and follow along in the events section there. And uh, you'll be able to see all the scriptures and some of the notes there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to be at today, looking at the church of Thyatira. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my honor and privilege to serve you in the scriptures. I love being able to open God's word and to travel through it and to see what he has for us. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're at today. Um, Have you ever made a judgment call? and found out later you were wrong. You ever done that one? Uh, I, I've got too many examples of that in my life uh, when I think about that. There, you know, sometimes you know, when you make those judgment calls, they don't really matter too much, and you just sort of look foolish. Like, you know, there's this one time where it was not here, okay? This was when we were living in California. One time, you know, I was in, I was in the Costco parking lot, and if you know what Costco is, then you know that this is a dangerous thing to go into the parking lot. And so I go into the parking lot and I'm sort of, you know, trying to find a parking spot and the whole parking lot's full. And so then I find someone who's like backing out, right? And so I, I stop and I put my blinker on because it's the universal sign of get away. That's mine. And um, I do that, but I'm sort of in this precarious position where I'm in the like driving lane and not in the parking lane, if that makes any sense. So I've got to like do a couple of turns to get into the parking spot. Well, I noticed somebody comes in from the opposite side and they put their blinker on. I'm like, now we're going to have World War III. Like, I'm fighting. This is my spot. I was here first. I obviously claim this spot. So, you know, the person backs out and, and I, this is shameful. I, I aggressively, like, throw my car into the parking spot so much that I'm not even really in the spot. The back tire's on the curb still a little bit, Right? After I park, the car next to me backs out and a little old lady parks in right there. I'm just like, oh my gosh, good thing. Like, good thing I got my spot. And she was waiting for the next one anyway. She wasn't even trying to get my spot. So what a, what a, anyway, sometimes your judgment calls just make you look foolish. Sometimes they actually matter a whole lot because they have to do with um, who you allow to influence your life. Like I, I had this friend when I was in high school and uh, I thought he was my friend. Um, And as I just spent more time with him, he led me further and further away from the things of the Lord. And it was, it was just, uh, you know, I I wasn't a Christian at the time, but he was leading me deeper, deeper into sin and just, uh, you know, um, uh, getting me into things and started to uh, have more sin in my life. And and he was just very divisive and uh, very conniving and and, uh, ended up actually stealing some firearms that were my, my uncle's. He stole them and, uh, from me and, uh, you know, just things like that and led me into sexual sin and all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, sometimes there's people in your life that they just lead you that way. And my judgment call about him led me in a really terrible way. You see, our judgment can be off for a whole lot of reasons. And, and part of it is, you know, just because we are fallible and we're imperfect. And even though we try to make the right judgment calls, we don't always get it right. Uh, But the truth is that Jesus is not. He's not fallible. He's perfect. And he's so far above us that we can trust his judgment. And that's what we're looking at in Revelation chapter 2 together today in verses 18 through 29. The, The big idea is this. Jesus is the infinite, eternal, righteous judge who clearly sees everyone's life. Now, as I say that, Maybe that gives you some comfort. 
And you're thinking, man, how, how great that Jesus clearly sees everything. And you're, and you're just comforted by that. Or maybe you're kind of freaked out by that. You're sort of hoping that maybe I would be able to hide from Jesus. And, uh, you know, you're, you're hoping that maybe he won't see everything. Uh, the, but the truth is that he's right. He's true. And he's the righteous judge. So let's read Revelation 2, 18 through 29 together. And then we'll break it down uh, piece by piece. Revelation 2, 18 says this. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give each to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say... And not to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works till the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with, an iron, uh, uh, with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels." as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And he, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word together today. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to be able to read it, to study it, and to see what you have to say. And we pray that you would give us understanding of your word, that God, somehow you would impart your wisdom, that God, you would give us uh, of your uh, comfort and your peace, that, Lord, you would show us how great you are, that you would bring conviction to our hearts and lives and lead us uh, in the way that you'd have us to go. So, Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful for this opportunity. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we break down Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, we're going to put bring it into four parts together today. And this has been our rhythm throughout each of these books or each of these uh, letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So Revelation 2 and 3 is seven letters that Jesus writes to seven different churches. And each one of them, we've broken down into these four parts. There's a vision from Jesus, verse 18. There's an encouragement from Jesus, verse 19. And then verses 20 through 25, a correction from Jesus. That's the bulk of the letter. And then verses 26 through 29, a promise from Jesus. Now, like we said before, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 uh, are these seven individualized letters written to the angel or the pastor of the church. Not only to the pastor, but the church is represented by the pastor, so it's to the church at large as well. And this is a part of Jesus's divine outline that we saw in Revelation 119, that Jesus says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, which is where we're at, and the things which will take place after this. So he gives us a timeline of how to interpret Revelation and what it looks like in the different parts. And so we are in the part of the things which are, which is the time of John's life, 
as well as these churches. And these seven letters, they all follow a similar basic pattern. Uh, and we're, we're not necessarily following this pattern, but it's, it's good for us to note it. There's a four-part structure. Number one, there's a highlighted attribute of Jesus. Number two, there's an encouragement that comes from Jesus. Number three, there's a correction from Jesus. And then fourthly, there's an eternal motivation that comes from Jesus as well. There's also a four-part application to each of these letters. That number one, you can apply this locally to this church church at this time. Like the, the church of Thyatira is not some sort of um, concept, but it's a real church, a real city, real people in real history. So locally, that church could, could apply it, but we could also broadly apply these ideas to any church in any time. Also, you can apply these ideas personally, individually, that I can see my life and how Jesus and what he has to say applies to me. And then prophetically, as we look across church history, we can see eras of time that are represented by each of the churches. All right, so let's look at this first piece together, a vision from Jesus in verse 18. Let's read it again. It says this, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these these things says the Son of God who has Eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, Thyatira, this city Thyatira, is the smallest and least significant city in, the, in all the list. All these seven churches, this one is the smallest city, and it's the least significant city in uh, the list of this. There's really no historical significance to the city of, of Thyatira. But as you read through history, they don't really stand out for, for really anything. There's, there's no, not only is there no real historical significance, there's no sign of Christian persecution in this city either. That, that Christians were sort they were just kind of there and they were part of what was going on. Really the only thing that this city stands out for in any way is that they were, um, being such a small city, they had a large number of trade guilds. Now if you don't know what a trade guild is, that's because you didn't live then. A trade guild is like a union. So if you know what a union is, you know what a trade guild is. So the, it's the idea of a, a group of workers that have a similar uh, trade and they band together and they do so uh, primarily for the idea of uh, increasing the quality of their work, that there's standards for their work, for licensing and for wages. And, and just like any union or, or whatever, there's good things and bad things about it. And so that's kind of what, what this was. Now, um, one of the things about this, this city, is is that it's not only mentioned here, but also we see it in Acts chapter 16. In verse 14, there's a woman, as Paul travels through the city of Philippi, he finds this woman named Lydia, and we're told that she is a seller of purple. And so she would be connected to the trade guilds in Thyatira that uh, were, you know, this, these uh, people who made purple. Now, the reason that purple was such a big deal is because of how difficult it was to make and how rare it was. And so if you wore purple clothing, then you would be expressing uh, something about yourself and your status and your, uh, your money. And so this city of Thyatira had more trade guilds than uh, other cities of its size. Uh, by far. And so that's the only thing that really stands out about it. Now, each trade guild would have a, they, they would basically select a God from the pantheon of gods, God with a little G, right? Uh, this pantheon of gods, they would select one and that would sort of be their mascot, right? They would they'd kind of go, here's our God. And, and maybe it was Apollo or maybe it was, you know, uh, 
whatever that guy was we talked about last week, Asclepius or whatever his name is. So whatever, they pick a god, and then what they would do is they would um, not only have that god, but they would commonly have their meetings, their union meetings in the temple of that god, which would typically involve some sort of pagan idolatrous worship, okay? So they would have their worship of that god as part of their meeting, and they thought that that would kind of bring blessing to their trade, you know, because we worship this god, this god's going to bless our trade, and we're going to do a good, you know, do well in business and be able to, uh, to make a lot of money. And so this is kind of the city of Thyatira and, how, and where Jesus is riding. And he reveals himself to this city, the church in this city, in three key ways there in verse 1. He says three things about himself. He says that he's the Son of God. He says he has eyes like flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Now, this phrase, Son of God, it's the only time that this phrase, Son of God, is used in all of Revelation. It's never used again. That's the only place that it's used here. And it's kind of interesting that it's used here. And, and some would look at this and say they wonder why they would do that. And, and perhaps it's because in this specific city, uh, they actually had a, a fairly large um, uh, temple to the god Apollo, who is the sun god. Um, and so Jesus says to the city that has this worship of the sun god, I'm the son of God, exalting himself to say, I'm the real god. That you have this sort of fake God of the Son, but I am really, really God. And that's what the Son of God means. That, that throughout the Bible, the Son of would mean that you have the same identity, you have the same uh, uh, likeness to, that you have the same um, uh, correspondence with that thing. So like when Jesus, about with James and John, he says, you're the sons of thunder, right? You remember that? What he was saying is, you guys are just, you're, you're just like thunder. He, he, they didn't actually, they weren't born from clouds, you know, smashing together or whatever. That's not how they came about. They were, they had the same kind of uh, attributes. And so when Jesus says he's the son of God, he's not saying that he's some sort of lesser thing, but he's claiming deity. That's what Jesus is doing. Not only do we see that, but we also see that he has eyes like a flame of fire. The idea of the eyes of flame of fire is that Jesus has this penetrating stare, this gaze of judgment. <clears throat> and we, we noted uh, in chapter 1 when we saw this, that as Jesus is referencing this vision in chapter 1, uh, that uh, Jesus is actually, it's very, pop, uh, very possible that what he's referring to is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in verses 12 through 15 and how the Bible says that our, our lives will be tried by fire. And if uh, the things of our lives are built from gold and silver and precious stones, then it'll survive the fire. But if the things of our life are like wood, hay, and stubble, it'll be burned up in the fire. And I wonder, and I, I'm, this is my thought, my opinion, I wonder if the moment that we stand before Jesus, that he, his piercing stare of the eyes of fire will judge our lives, and it'll, the, the things of our lives that are worthless will be all burned up in that moment. Not only do we see his eyes like a flame, but he also has feet like brass, feet like fine brass. Do you see that there? Now, the idea of fine brass is the idea that it's highly refined, that it's very pure. It's, it's emphasizing the purity of Jesus. And the thing that's important about this for us to grasp is that Jesus is pure. He's, he is holy. But, but the idea of brass is that it's not pure and it has to become pure. Does that make sense? That when you get it out of the ground, it has a bunch of impurities in it. And the way that you purify it is by heating it up and then you pull the impurities out of it. Jesus' feet 
are the part that is like this fine brass. Why? Because he walked in my judgment. He took my judgment. His purity isn't for him, it's for me. This, this judgment uh, that, that he endures on his cross is to make me pure, not him. Fire and brass both speak of Jesus' purifying judgment. They're, they are attributes of his character that emphasize what this church needs to hear. And that's what it is every single time all the way through. That there's this thing that Jesus is, is exalted as, is shown as, this vision of Jesus. And, and that is something that the church then needs to see. And it's something that we need to see today as well, to see Jesus this way, that he has this purifying judgment. Not only do we see a vision from Jesus, but also an encouragement from Jesus in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says this, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. I love how Jesus says this to each church. I know you. I know about you. You see, Jesus understands very specific things about each church. And the thing that's amazing is that he knows every one of the churches. You see, every church is very different from uh, any other church. And the reason why is because the church isn't the building. You, you know, we could replicate this building and put it in a different place. And people might go, oh yeah, that's the same church. It's not at all because the church isn't the building. The church is us. It's the people of God gathered together. And as we gather together in Jesus' name, we are the church. And so because God has put us together in this place, we are going to look very different because we're different as people. And so the uniqueness of who we are and our callings and giftings and passions and our placement make each church individualized. And there's four things that are called out by Jesus. He says, I know your love. I know your service, I know your faith, and I know your patience. Think about that for a minute. If Jesus said that about you, wouldn't that be a great thing? You'd be like, A plus on my, on my uh, report card. You know, Jesus sees these things in me. He sees my love. He sees that I love him, that I'm passionate about him and the things that he's passionate about. He, he sees how I serve him and I sacrifice for him and I give of my time and talent and treasure for his for his sake. He sees my faith that I trust him and I hope in him and I follow him and I believe him. He sees my patience that, that I, I am able to endure when things aren't easy. And if this was all we knew about this church, we would conclude this is a great church. We would look at that and say, yeah, we need to be more like the church in Thyatira. In fact, last week we actually had a, a visitor who came to our church from out of town and uh, was just here with some friends. And after church, he stopped by just to, to, to tell me about his experience coming to the church. And he just wanted to thank me for how loving and kind and gracious you are. He told me about how many people came up and talked to him, made him feel welcome, recognized him, and he, and he explained that in um, contrast to other churches he had visited where he was ignored, where nobody said anything to him, where nobody, nobody acknowledged his presence, and he felt awkward and weird. Being, I mean, it's weird going to a church for the first time, right? You've done that. Right? Every, every one of us have gone to a church for the first time. And when you go in, you already feel a little weird, right? Because it's kind of like they know each other. They sort of have this thing. And I'm just going to jump in and be a part of this. And then you show up and you have this sort of apprehension. And then when nobody talks to you and nobody acknowledges you and nobody asks you anything and you just kind of come in and go out, 
it just makes it even that much more difficult. And so I just, I just thought it was amazing that he, he told me about how uh, and thanked me for how loving and kind and warm you were to him. Not only were these the four things present in this church, but they were abounding in them. Do you see that there at the end of verse 19? He says, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. They're growing and expounding in this. I mean, this is, this is amazing. This is an incredible thing. And even though Thyatira was not a significant city from the world's perspective, Jesus was interested in this church. It was a small city. It really didn't have any, there's really no historical significance whatsoever, but Jesus was interested. Even though everyone else might not be interested, Jesus was. And he was aware of them. You see, you are seen by Jesus. Maybe you would look at your life and you would say, you know, because of what others have said or, or maybe your own evaluation of your life, you would say, you know, I don't really know why I would even register on the matter meter to Jesus. Why would I even matter at all? Well, maybe, maybe my life has just passed over or maybe the hardships you've endured, you think that maybe Jesus just doesn't see you. But here's the truth. He knows and he cares and he's near. You see, no matter what you feel, no matter what others say, Jesus is present in your life. And he knows about what's taking place. Not only do we see a vision from Jesus, an encouragement from Jesus, but also here in the bulk of the letter, there's a correction from Jesus. You see, if, that, if all we had was this, was this encouragement, man, this church would be amazing. But there's some big issues taking place in the church of Thyatira. Look at verse 20. It says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So Jesus has this word, this ominous word that he starts with in verse 20, nevertheless. Nevertheless is a word, it's, it's only, this is one of two churches who hear this. We saw this in our first church, the church of Ephesus. Jesus says this to the church of Ephesus, nevertheless. And basically what nevertheless means is, despite all that, it's, it's kind of a, a terrible thing. It's, it's to say as if all the previous good doesn't matter because of how bad this is. That's just not a good thing to hear, especially from Jesus. Here's how uh, David Guzik says it. When somebody lists all your good qualities and then says, despite all that, you are in a bad place. We, what you want them to do is list all your bad qualities and then say, despite all that. Right? There's just, they're in this spot of, man, this is not a good place. You know, I'd love it. You know, I love when my wife says, yeah, you this and you this and you this, but I love you anyway. Like, that's great. Praise the Lord for that. But when it's like, hey, you did some good stuff, but, you know, uh, I have some issues with you. That's not a good thing to hear. And so Jesus, he sees and he's fully aware of this church. And some people in the church are actually hoping to sort of fly under the radar, go out of his sight. That maybe Jesus doesn't know about this stuff. Maybe Jesus isn't aware. And he's like, no, I actually know. I am fully aware and I am bringing righteous judgment. And what does Jesus know about? What's Jesus aware of? Well, there's a certain woman uh, named Jezebel. You see that there? Verse 20, now her name probably isn't actually Jezebel, um, much like the way that you don't know anybody named Judas. Oh, I hope not. Uh, that'd be a terrible name for, or Lucifer. Like that's just not a good name to give to somebody. Uh, that, that, I mean, there are people who are crazy and maybe they will do such a thing, but that name doesn't carry good connotation with it, right? And so what, what it is, is that, that the name represents something else. 
Uh, and so too it is with Jezebel. Jezebel isn't probably this woman's name. It's representing 1 Kings chapter 16 and the woman Jezebel then, and how she led Israel into idolatry and sinfulness. And why is this uh, person, what's the issue Jesus has with this uh, woman Jezebel? Uh, notice he says there in verse 20, who calls herself a prophetess. That she is claiming something that is not hers. That she's claiming a position that Jesus hasn't given to her. She's usurping authority that is not hers to take. That Jesus has not gifted her as a prophetess. Jesus has not called her into the ministry of, of being a prophet for him. And yet she is claiming this. Now, the idea of prophecy is that we got to get with this, is that it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit, and it's not gender-specific, if that makes any sense. The issue is not about men or women being prophets of the Lord. Uh, here's what Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9 says. It says, On the next day, uh, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now listen to this part. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. He has four daughters. I, I kind of know what that's like. It's funny, I, uh, when I was in uh, Acts class in Bible college, uh, we had to pick somebody to do a report on in the book of Acts, and I picked Philip, and I wrote about his life, and this was a significant portion of his life that you know later on he's found in Caesarea, and he's got these four daughters, and they're all prophetesses. And uh, little did I know that writing that, I was going to be writing about my life, you know, that I would have four daughters. But the issue is that their, their gift of being a prophetess was not, uh, it's not specific to gender. You don't have to be a man or a woman to have this. It's, so it's, the issue isn't gender. It's, the issue is appointment by Jesus. She appointed herself as this prophetess. And what she was saying is, I speak on God's behalf. You can trust my words, but there was no appointment by Jesus. There was no authority from Jesus. And so she's just speaking on her own authority. Now, their sin in Thyatira is exactly the same as what we looked at last week in the church of Pergamos. Did you notice that there in verse 20? That uh, she, leads the, she teaches uh, um, Jesus' servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. It's exactly what we saw in chapter 2, verse 14 in the church of Pergamos. It's just repackaged. It's, it's not the teaching of Balaam. It's not the stuff of the Nicolaitans. It's the teaching of this prophetess Jezebel that's taking place here as well, this false prophetess. You see... The issue might very well be connected to the trade guilds and how the people would make money. And the, basically the thing is, when unions are sort of established, you either are a part of the union or you don't really make any money. That's just kind of how it works. And that's very much how it works. It worked here in this time. If you're not part of the trade guild, you're not going to get the work. You're not going to make the money. And so she very well could have been opening the door for people to say, yeah, it's fine. Go down to the, the false idol temple and worship there, which caused would involve eating a meal that was in honor and reverence to that false god, and then also sexual immorality as an act of worship to that false god. And so she was opening the door to things that Jesus hated, and, and Jesus says, this is an issue. But the, the truth is, it's just repackaged here. Why? Well, because all people are susceptible to the same temptations, we actually have the exact same problems in our culture right now. The same issues are the big problems in our culture right now. Idolatry in our culture looks like this. It looks like self-exaltation. 
that, that I uh, um, am able to, to do whatever I want, that what I think matters most, be true to you. You do your own thing. Your truth is your truth, and it can be whatever you want it to be. That self-exaltation has become the, the uh, idolatry of our time, this false God that we worship. We actually worship ourselves. And the issue with self-exaltation is there's no submission. I'm not submitted to any authority. I am my authority. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide the course of my life. I'm not going to submit myself to Jesus. He doesn't get to have rule and reign over me. I do. There's no submission. We also deal massively with immorality in our culture, don't we? It is prevalent. It is everywhere. That sexual perversion is everywhere in our culture. And what, this, what really this is all about is what I want matters most. That, that people have become so twisted in their thinking that they have decided that, that sexual perversion is now their identity. I am my sexual perversion. I am this thing that is uh, this desire within me. And, and the, the, the reality with that, the problem with that, that is that there's no sanctity. That Jesus is the one who invented sex. He's the one that invented marriage. And he's the one that gets to define it. That we don't get to redefine all of these things and then just say, God, you've got to accept what I want. And so just what they're dealing with then is exactly what we're dealing with today. Why? Because all Satan has to do is repackage the same thing and we'll go for it. We'll go for it every time. So that's all he does. So Jesus has a couple of issues with this. Number one, that Jezebel has this sin of seducing Jesus' followers into this sin. She's saying it's good, it's a right, it's okay, God loves it, God accepts all of this, and whatever you want, you just bring it in, and, and God, will, God will receive that stuff. And that's just not true. That, that Jesus, like we said last week, he's exclusive and he's narrow. But also, the issue is, do you see that there in verse uh, 20? He says, uh, at the very beginning, he says, I have a few things against you because... You allow that woman, Jezebel, that, that there's an allowance by the church for her to have this influence. And some would even look at the language there and say that this woman might actually be the pastor's wife and that she's the one leading people into all of this sinfulness and that there's this allowance for her to do these things. You see, the, the problem is that they were valuing love above the truth. Remember what Jesus said that was good about them? I know your works, your love. Love was first. It's interesting. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says this. The Ephesian church, remember we looked at that one in our first week together in this mini-series through the churches. The Ephesian church was weakening in its love, yet faithful to judge false teachers, while the people in the assembly in Thyatira were growing in their love, but too tolerant of false doctrine. Both extremes must be avoided in the church. Speaking the truth in love... Um, is the biblical balance, Ephesians 4.15. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. Think about that. Because you probably land on one side or the other. You probably sort of gravitate toward one or the other. You probably gravitate either toward unloving orthodoxy or loving compromise. And whichever one that is, we have to understand both are actually hateful to God and we have to have love and truth together, uh, mixed together. So what does Jesus do? Verse 21, Jesus says this, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death 
And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. The, the word repent in this, these couple of verses is stated three separate times. That, and we have to pay attention when God chooses to repeat himself. And so Jesus repeats this idea of repentance over and over again. And we've talked about this before, but just so that we can keep our heads in the right place, what is repentance? Repentance is to change your mind. It's to say, I have one idea about the way life should be, one idea about what right and wrong is. I have one idea about how I think life should go. And Jesus disagrees with me. And so I change my mind to go Jesus' way. That's the idea of repentance. It's not that I change my mind from one sinful thing to another sinful thing or from one uh, concept to another. It's that I change from that to Jesus, that I'm going to go his way. I'm going to change my mind about him, that it's, it's to decide that Jesus is right and as a result, change my actions, that what I do comes out of the decision I make to, change, to follow the Lord. And, and so what did Jesus say? He says, I graciously gave her time to change her mind. But she refused. You see, repentance has the power to change everything. Why? Because it's the only attitude that aligns me under the forgiveness of Jesus and under the ability of Jesus. That's why repentance is such a big deal. That, that, that you know, just you know, saying it's January, so I'm just going to make a New Year's resolution to be a better something. You know, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to manage my money better. I'm going to, you know do better at taking time off and taking vacations or whatever it is. That, that there's this thing, we're, I'm going to do better at this. And I have this thing that I want to do. And every one of us fail at it, right? By the time February rolls around, we're not doing whatever the thing is that we said we were going to do because we lack the power and ability to change ourselves. But repentance, changing my mind to align with Jesus, to submit to him in his way, that is what puts me under his forgiveness, that's what puts me under his ability. Otherwise, my soul remains filthy because I have no forgiveness. I can't forgive myself. I can't cleanse myself. Only Jesus can. And my life remains in bondage because I have no ability to free myself. Jesus is the only one who can do such things. But if we reject repentance, all that is left for us is to bear the consequences of our sin. Isn't that what Jesus is talking about in verses 22 and 23? Because she refuses to repent, I'm going to cast her into a sickbed. And all of those who follow her. Now, her children, verse 23, aren't her actual kids. Her children are the ones who follow her, the, the, the follow her teaching. That's what, what it's talking about. Those who are the ones who go along with her in this stuff. And he says, I will kill them with death. Wow, that's kind of, I don't know what that means, but that sounds bad. <laughs> you know, uh, it has actually uh, connotations of the second death, that they're not, they're not saved. They think that they can bring in their idolatrous stuff and their sin and bring it in to, to their relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't accept that. And so there's connotations of, of eternity in hell uh, with this as well. That they think they're a part of the church, but they're, they're actually not. You see, if you reject repentance, all that's left is for you to bear the consequences of your own sin. And it's actually worse and more painful than we think it is. Don't you hear people when they talk about hell, don't they, they talk about it like the devil is sitting on some sort of throne and it's a big party? That's not hell. That's not hell. The devil is not the like ruler over hell. Hell is designed for him to suffer. 
That's what it's for. He's not in charge of it. He's not got the pitchfork and he's poking people. Like, that's not the way that it is. It's not a party. It's, it's suffering and torment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he, this is speaking of God the Father, made him, Jesus, so God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, right? Jesus was sinless, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What this is speaking about is that when Jesus went to the cross, he took your pain, he took your torment, he took your suffering. Why? So that you could take his place in being the beloved, in being accepted, in being received before the Lord. It's, this is pointing back to the brass feet of Jesus, that he walked in your judgment to be refined and purified for you, to take your sin from you. You see, repentance is not to pretend that evil never happened, and it's not to make an excuse for evil. That's not where repentance is. It shifts the responsibility to Jesus' shoulders, that he's going to pay for it. You know, it's like when you go out to eat with somebody, and then, you know, the bill comes, and there's like this awkward moment of who's going to pay for it. Jesus grabs the bill right, right away. There's not, there's not even a debate, you know. He's not going to try to allow you to pay for it at all. No, he takes it, and he pays for it all himself. The responsibility is all shifted to him, and there's only two options. Either Jesus pays my price for me, or I pay my price for myself. And that is to be killed with death when I pay my price for myself. But Jesus says, I'll pay for you. And the, the truth of the matter is that God here is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring the consequences of sin into your life. And, and why? Because he's trying to get us to repentance. You see, God's promise of coming judgment is always a gracious call to repentance. That's why there's a call. Uh, that's why there's judgment. There's this impending doom that says, you don't have to go this way. You could turn to me is what Jesus is saying. C.S. Lewis says it like this uh, in The Problem of Pain. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attend to, attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God uses pain to bring about the purity that can come no other way. Notice it says there in verse 23, Jesus says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. In the Greek language, this is literally the hearts and the kidneys. Uh, it's kind of, kind of weird for us, but basically the heart in their mind was the place of the intellect. We don't really think of it that way, right? We don't think of my heart being the place of my intellect. I think of my head or my, my mind, my brain being the place of the intellect. And they would say the kidneys... We're the place of the emotions. It's like if I was to say to Micah, I love you with all my kidneys. Like, it's kind of weird. But the heart is sort of, you know, like a, a, an image of that as well. It's not really actually the organ that pumps the blood through my body. That's not what I love her with. It's something else inside me, right? Does that make sense? So there's just this idea of this. That, that, here's the thing. That what Jesus is saying is, I see it all. Nothing is hidden from me. He knows your every thought. He knows your every emotion. Nothing is hidden from him at all. And he will deal with it. And so what does he say? Verse 24, he says, To you, and now to you I say, and the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. This to you and to the rest, to you is to the pastor. 
Jesus is shifting his focus back. And as he's bringing this correction, he's thinking back on the past. He says, to you and to the rest of the churches, not following the doctrine of this Jezebel. You, you have not jumped into the depths of Satan. Jesus isn't saying that you can just kind of jump in and out of these things and that it's not that big a deal. He's saying, no, when you go into that sexual immorality, when you go into that idolatry, it's the depths of Satan. That Jesus is calling them away from that. And, and Jesus says, though the door is opened to sin, you have refused to go through it. And that's an amazing thing. The depths of Satan is a description of the idolatry and the immorality that Jezebel promoted and led others into. And it wasn't just no big deal. It was actually a major thing. And there are actually some who foolishly believe it's a good idea for them to get to know the depths of Satan. I was actually just talking to somebody last week about this, that they have a friend who's, who's saying, I just want to kind of get to know all of the other religious views and all the other things in life, but they're not really pursuing the things of the Lord. And, and might I just tell you that that's just a foolish thing to do, that, that there's not really a reason for you to get to know the depths of satanic deception. Yeah, there is a way in which you can start to study such things in order to know about them, uh, but as a supplement to your living, vibrant relationship with Jesus. That's important to pursue him with all you are. And then study some Mormonism so you can understand that and you can help them as well. And then maybe study some Jehovah's Witness doctrine so you can maybe help some Jehovah's Witnesses. Or maybe study something about Muslim and what they believe and, and you can help some of them. But just saying, I'm just going to sort of dive into all of these other areas and just learn about all this stuff. No, that's a foolish thing to do. It's going to lead you away from the Lord. It's not going to make you stronger. It's not going to make you better. You don't need to indulge in sin or get to know filth in order to know that it's wrong and evil. It's not actually helping you in order to, to do that. Now, the message that Jesus has to the faithful and uncompromising churches, look here, verse 25, hold fast, but hold fast what you have till I come. Um, and, uh, uh, and yeah, and that, that's his message. That the message Jesus has to the faithful is to hold fast. That they don't, he's saying, don't get distracted and don't get discouraged, stay the course. Stay the course. See, what Jesus is basically revealing is here is that there are three biblical ways to combat satanic attack. You're in the middle of satanic attack in your life all the time. There is spiritual pressure and opposition on you at all times uh, to, to, uh, to go in some sort of compromising way. Well, number one, the, the first way to uh, stand to combat this uh, satanic attack is to stand. Ephesians 6.13 that you hold your ground, that you weather the storm, that that's how you're going to combat satanic attack. The second one is going to be resisting. James 4, 7, that, that to resist is to uh, not give in. Don't give in. Actually push back. When you sense the, that there's this pressure coming against you, it's to resist it. Push back against it. Don't allow it to push on you. You push back against it. And thirdly is obedience, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that you're going to choose what's right above your feelings. That, that I may feel a certain way, but I'm going to obey what Jesus has to say. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we read that the way to combat satanic attack is to shout at the devil. Nowhere do we read that you're supposed to like stomp on Satan's head or something like that. Like that's just not stuff that you find in the Bible. There's not this, the, the, the Bible says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The Bible says, stand fast 
as, satanic press, as the satanic attack comes upon you. But as we get our focus off and we start talking to Satan, like that's, that's what Eve did and that's what got her in trouble. Remember that? Don't, you don't need to talk to the devil. Your prayers are not to Satan. It's not to the principalities. It's not to the problems in the world. You don't speak to situations. You speak to Jesus. And then he fixes all the issues, right? So we just stand. We, re- we resist and we obey. All right, fourthly and finally, a promise from Jesus. Verses 26 through 29. Verse 26 says this. And he who overcomes and keeps my works till the end, I... Uh, until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus, again, has a promise for the one who overcomes, and this is something he says over and over again to all of the churches, and this has two different applications. One is that he's the only one who's truly the overcomer. He's the only one who is able to have the victory, that we are all overtaken by sin and death, and yet Jesus overcomes these two great enemies. Jesus has victory over sin where we cannot. Jesus defeats death by rising from the dead after he is crucified. And he defeats these two great enemies, not just because it's a display of his power, but he does it on our behalf. And you become an overcomer by having your faith firmly placed in him. That by faith, we are actually to to be able to practically become overcomers and live lives that are victorious here today. And what does Jesus say to do? He says, he that overcomes and keeps my works until the end. You see, those who are keeping the works of Jesus, this is the evidence that you are um, an overcomer in him. That, that the evidence that you're kept by him is that you keep his works. It, this is what it is to be an overcomer. That Jesus gives you the desire to overcome. Jesus gives you the opportunity to overcome, and Jesus gives you the ability to overcome. It's all found in him. It's all his strength, all his greatness. Now, verse 27, he says this idea of ruling them with a rod of iron and and those kinds of things. This is also speaking of the judgment of Jesus, and this is uh, speaking uh, in the future about Jesus and the reference of himself in his kingdom, that when Jesus comes back at the end of Revelation, we'll see this, to establish his kingdom, he is ruling with the rod of iron. Psalm chapter 2 references this. And it's this uh, promise from verse 26 uh, that his people will have a part in his kingdom. You see at the end of verse 26, I will give power over the nations. That Jesus says, I'm coming back to establish my kingdom on earth, a physical, literal kingdom, and that he's going to bring his people with him and that we will rule and reign with Jesus as he is the righteous judge. That's the promise that is given there. And then verse 28, he says this, and I will give him the morning star. This, this phrase, the morning star, is actually Jesus referencing himself in 1 Peter 1.19 and also at the end of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is the morning star. And what Jesus is saying here is not just that you belong to him, but that he gives himself to you. What, a, what an amazing idea that he makes himself available to you, that he says he belongs to you. It's like Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3, that says this, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. 
He feeds his flock among the lilies. That this loving description of a man and a wife dedicated to one another in Song of Solomon is the description used for us in our relationship with Jesus, this dedication. In verse 29, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At this point, uh, and for the rest of the remaining three letters, this call to hear is the final thing that Jesus says. It's like his conclusion. It's this call to action. That the contents of these letters are written for them then, and they're written for us now. Notice the singular. He says, he who has an ear to hear. And he says, let him uh, hear what the Spirit says. It's a singular thing. So the question Jesus is asking you and asking me is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with what's been stated? You see, your life is on full display before Jesus. It doesn't matter how well-known you believe you are or how obscure you believe you are. He knows you, and his judgment about you is right. It's, it's perfect. It's pure. It's holy. So are you like Jezebel, leading others into sinfulness? Are, are you opening the door to things and using your influence to lead people into sin? Or maybe you're like those who followed Jezebel. You're just kind of going along and going the wrong way. And you're not really thinking for yourself and considering the consequences of what's taking place. Or maybe you're like those who allowed Jezebel to have a place of influence. That, that maybe you're not going with her. Maybe you're, not, maybe you're not the one leading, but you're allowing that to, to stand and to be there. You see, any of those three, hear Jesus' call to repentance. But it's time to abandon your way and to go his way. Or maybe you're like those who are faithfully holding fast. And, and, and to you, it's to be encouraged that it's worth it to keep his works until the end. You see, Jesus's call to you is to choose repentance and to choose to hold fast. The question is, will you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to open it together today. And we pray that you would give us the ability to choose repentance. That you would show us where we are off with you, where we go our own way, and we would abandon that way to turn to you. God, help us to change our minds and give us the ability to hold fast to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.